the Christmas story has a lot of unusual people in as well, where you think, are they like leading us in worship there? Uh, you got the Magi. They're people from the East who are not Jewish people, not lovers of God, but they're seekers of truth. And Jesus includes these magi, these, these foreigners in the Christmas story. And then he goes out and first announces this to the, the everyday blue-collar workers out there, the shepherds in the field. Now, I can tell you this from historical readings. You can study it for yourself. These were just what we would say just rough, of cob, rough as cob people out there, just, you know, rough, tough, probably didn't have the best language, probably didn't, you know, talk the, the most righteous and holy, uh, probably were some of the, the least educated in the world, and, and guess what? Jesus brings them right into the story. I think we're starting to see something here. Jesus is for everyone. He's for the foreigner that's far away, that doesn't even, he's not, they're not even Jews, they don't even understand the concept of God. And he says, come on into the story. Hey, you know what? You people who don't hold uh, college degrees and theological degrees, and you're not a, a scribe or a Pharisee, you're just out there on the hillside grinding out a living, come on into the story. Come on into the story. You know what? We're going to, we're, God's come up with a plan where he says, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my son in the least likely place you could think of, to Bethlehem. He's going he's to show up in a feeding trough. The Christmas story, I, God's just so cool. He's so interesting that he, he takes this story. No wonder the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they were looking for King Jesus. Now, guess what? We have King Jesus. But when he showed up, he said, what? You're not inviting the, the elite of the community? You're not inviting the most educated? You're not inviting the most spiritual? He's invite- Now, he does invite them, too. But the Christmas story just seems kind of upside down. And uh, we learned something else about God. This is my opinion, okay? You won't find this in a theology book. He really don't care what you and I think about it. He really doesn't say, well, I, I hope this pleases the masses how I decided to do this. He doesn't say that at all. He does his thing and invites us into it. And so you hear Paul preaching, and Paul starts laying out all these horrible sins and backgrounds and everything. And Paul, the, who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, he's saying, this is what some of you were. The, I don't know where we came from, but I'm saying Jesus... The Father is inviting you into the Christmas story. He's inviting you into the story because he's crazy in love with you. I don't know. I'm like the psalmist. What is man that you are mindful of us, the son of man that you visit us? I look at this table and I say, seriously? The word God clothed himself in a human body? And what was his destiny? To die for us. He knew the brutal pain he was going to go through, but he comes to this point where he says, shall I, this is my choice word, shirk back from this moment? No, it was for this very moment that I came to give his life as a ransom for many. But the ransom doesn't have until, come until we have the birth. So I want to remind us about what Advent is. Advent's just a general basic word that means a coming or an arrival. And if you, 
it doesn't have to be spiritual at all. If you're looking forward to a family member you haven't seen in five years that's coming to one of your Christmas gatherings, that's an advent. You're awaiting their arrival, their coming. Now, in the churchy world, it's the four Sundays that precede Christmas, and uh, we laughed about this a little bit last week. It says, you know, traditionally it was designed as a time for prayer and for fasting. That's the part I found funny. Fasting, we don't think of Christmas as fasting, fasting and repentance. There's probably some prayer going on, probably next to no fasting going on, and maybe a little repentance after we don't fast. You know, you ever do that? I always have my, my I am the most committed, faithful, healthy eater after I've left a buffet. You know, I mean, we say, I'm never going to do that again. So there's probably some repentance like that going on. So in the Advent season, God addresses uh, four, historically, there's four specific points that get addressed in, in the Advent season, the Christmas season. And last week we talked about hope. And this week we're going to talk about peace. Peace. We have this ability to possess peace that comes from the Prince of Peace. And so we looked at, if you've ever been through a hopeless situation in your life that seemed to hang on way too long, it's a horrible place to be. A sense of hopelessness is a horrible place to be. And if you've ever been in a place in your life where you've lacked peace, and all of us have been to all these places sometime or another, but have you ever been in a place where you've lacked peace for a lengthy period of time, you know what I'm saying is true. It's horrible. It's horrible not to have peace. Peace is is incredibly important. And so God comes into our situation and says, I want to bring you peace. Do you remember those, um, uh, I think they're MasterCard commercials. They're, they, it's a good little twist on things. It would say, basically you'd see somebody just buying some everyday thing. Like you might see somebody out there buying games for the backyard. No big deal. But then they would cut away and they would show this couple playing with this children and they'd say, playing with your grandchildren. Priceless. Remember those? Priceless. I agree. I think peace is priceless. It's, very, it's priceless to my life. Probably if you, if you haven't been without peace, if you're without it once, you'll understand priceless when you have peace. If I had all the abundance of the world and the best of the best of everything, but I had to get it by using that MasterCard and piling up debt to where, although I had all these nice things, uh, they became a burden to me, and I would lie on the pillow at night, looking up at the ceiling, you know, wondering about the three past due notices on the kitchen table. If you've ever been there, you realize that's a very unrestful place to be, and God wants to take you through those things. Don't camp out there. I would rather live uh, in a lesser home where somebody said, you could afford a bigger home, or, or you could afford a, a better car. You could have got a loan for more. I, that, I would rather have less and have peace. Because I believe putting my head on the pillow at night and going off to sleep in peace is priceless. And God must think so too. Because there's like hundreds, I want you to catch that, there's hundreds, hundreds of verses on peace. And the most specific thing pointed towards Jesus is, in the definition, is when Jesus, the coming of Jesus at the Incarnation. Now, the incarnation is the embodiment, the physical embodiment of God. God comes, wraps himself in a human body. And so the word incarnation or incarnate, you actually sing incarnate in some of your worship hymns, Christmas hymns, and that's what it means. It means becoming flesh or putting on a body. So we want to talk about this Christmas peace that God wants to bring. We sing about it. 
Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth, goodwill towards men. We, we sing about the peace on earth, the mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. Now again, reconciliation might not be a word you use a whole lot, but it means bringing back into relationship. When a relationship has been broken, as sin broke our relationship with God, Jesus is the one that brings it back together and brings reconciliation to us. So we want to focus on peace today. Jesus comes to give us peace. Now, there's an interesting thing about being a believer, and I really hope we get this in our hearts and we can convey it to others. There are those who think, you know, I'm really not interested in being a Christian at this time. I mean, I feel like Christianity takes too much out of my life. I don't get to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it, whom I want to do it, where I want to do it. And I want to do that. I want to be captain of my ship. I want to be master of my fate. I don't want God to be. So, you know, I'll put that off to another day, if ever. Because we have this, it's a lie from the devil. We have this lie from the devil. We see it in the garden. God's trying to hold you back. He's trying to take something away from you. And we don't understand that Jesus is the author of life. He created everything. He knows how to do life. You'll hear me say this over and over and over. You've probably heard me say it a hundred times. God's not trying to steal anything from you. If there was something that God needed that he didn't have, he'd just make it. I mean, he doesn't have to say, well, I'll see if somebody else has it. If it's something that he doesn't have, then none of us have it, because every good thing comes from the Father above. So it's all from God. So he's trying to teach us how to do life, because when he shows us how to do life and we obey it and we start doing it, then we create an atmosphere for hope, like we talked about last week. We create an atmosphere for peace. So there's this natural side of thing that God says, I've got these ideas about how to do life, uh, morality and ethics and, and relationships and, and physical health and spiritual health. And I've got all these ideas, and he conveys these principles to us. And when we walk in them, we create an atmosphere of blessing in our lives. We create, you can create an atmosphere of peace in your life by obeying the teachings of Jesus. So he's not trying to steal anything from you. So when you start doing that, you don't have to be looking over your shoulder. You don't have to have your life shipwrecked in work and school and play and neighborhood and relationships because of all the bad choices you've made and the wrong ways you've decided to live. That just creates an atmosphere of dis-peace, of a lack of peace. God wants to create an atmosphere of peace in your life. And yes, I know it. There always seems to be a time, some knucklehead who comes into our life who just loves drama and trauma and stress and he loves to, he or she loves to create problems. That happens, but that's the exception, not the norm. We can create an atmosphere of peace by being obedient to Jesus. So he, he deals with both the natural side and the spiritual side. That's why Paul told Timothy that godliness is a great gain. It has great gain. Physical exercise has some value, but godliness is profitable unto everything, holding promise now for this life, the natural life you live, and the life to come. So that's the beautiful thing about going after God. In our household, we did our very best to create and maintain an atmosphere of peace. Now, we're normal people. There would be times where, you know, the kids would misbehave or they would act up or we'd be in arguments with them or whatever. There's times that Darlene wasn't being submissive and I, I had to deal with that strongly. You know, there's stuff like that that happens in, in every home. For those of you who don't know, she does smile at my goofy jokes down there. So you, I'm sure some of you think, He's gonna, she's going to kill him. Uh, well, you'll know if I don't come back next week. So, uh, so, I mean, we had spats, we had arguments, we had fights, not physical fights, but fights. So if you were in our home, but I'll, I'll say this, if you were in a home for an entire decade, 365 days a year, you would find that lacking peace was the exception. 
that was the rarity in our home, the peace reigned and ruled in our home because we did the best we could to create an atmosphere of peace by being doers of the word as best as we could and the help of the Holy Spirit. I'm not, we're not poster children for Christianity. I'm just saying this is something anyone can do that they can go after God, create an atmosphere in their home to have peace. Now, we used to live in the Parsonage, which is to my right, right back behind this building. And uh, so every now and then there'd be people that come over and they'd get counseling or care or whatever. And sometimes they'd actually verbalize this. I wish we could stay here. There's so much peace here. And we would say, we don't wish you could stay here. Uh, We would not do that. We would not say that. What I understand is what they experienced. And there were still kids running around. There's still noise. Because peace is not just the absence of noise. Peace is not just the absence of tension. It's an atmosphere that you create by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit and Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace. But what happens is, uh, and I know what they were saying. Actually, it was very respectful and very complimentary to us. They wanted to live in that peace that we had created in our home. But here's the problem. They can't live in our home all the time. So we need to learn how to cultivate that atmosphere in our own homes, where every home can be a house of hope. Every home can be a house of peace. Every home can be a house of joy. And so we work. And how does that happen? It happens by doing the word of God, by putting into practice the principles and teachings of Jesus. And you create an atmosphere of peace. And you have so much more hope and joy and love in your life when you create the atmosphere of peace by being a doer of God's word. Now, here's one of the problems uh, in the Christian world, my life, your life, everybody's, is that the teaching goes out, but you have to apply the teaching. There's the weak link in our lives, and mine too, you know, the application of these truths. Because you could sit in church over and over and over and over. You could do your morning Bible study over and over and over. You could leave the TV on some spiritual channel. And you could say at the end of 10 years, I don't think I've grown very much. I tell you why, because you didn't do what you were being taught. You, you learned, you became knowledgeable, you became uh, learned in the scriptures, but you didn't do them. So we have to start practicing. There's so many times Paul uses that word practice. I think it's a great word. The Holy Spirit inspired the writing, of course, to practice, put into practice the word of God and just keep doing it and doing it and doing it. And you will grow and develop your skill in that area and the Lord will bless you in that. So, so Christianity, in one sense, wants to deal with this natural world around us where we can be filled with hope and we can be filled with, with peace. But there's also a supernatural side to that because Jesus can infiltrate our lives when the circumstances are not good, when situations are not right, and he can begin to deposit within us a supernatural peace. And so we have to trust him because he is the prince of peace. So I want to look at that in Philippians chapter 4, 6 through 7, since our Advent theme for this Sunday is peace. Philippians 4, 6 through 7, I chose to use the New Living Translation for this. I have it memorized in like the King James and NIV, but I like to look at how different translations say things. So I think this is really clear. Don't worry about anything. Did you all get that? Don't worry about anything. Now, can we all agree, easier said than done? I think we can all agree with that. If you don't have a worry in the world today, that verse is like, amen, brother, that's awesome, that's fantastic, that's the way I'm living today. Uh, but when worry comes, when something comes to try to produce worry, God's still saying don't worry. 
If you read in other translations, it's don't let, don't permit, don't allow worry to take hold of you. It's not that it's not going to come knocking on the door of your mind or your heart, but don't let it take up residence. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. That's a beautiful passage. That I mention this every time because this passage always intrigues me because you will not find anywhere in this powerful, amazing chapter of Philippians 4 that God's even going to answer your prayer. Now, we know God answers prayer, but it's interesting that God's saying, pray, press in, thank God, do all this stuff. But he doesn't say, and when you do that, I will answer your prayers. Now, we know he answers prayer, but have you noticed that there is a, a gap often between when we say amen and when we hold it in our hand. Now, Jesus teaches this, the spiritual faith principle. He says, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you have received them. So right here is when I'm to believe I have received them. Faith, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this is where I believe I receive. But we all know in the natural world of things that sometimes the answer doesn't come where we're actually seeing it. We're touching it, feeling it, holding it for a, a gap of time, sometimes a pretty big gap of time. And what we need between amen and hallelujah, it's here, is peace. We need our mind and our heart to be covered with peace. Peace is a very faith-filled thing. To be able to have peace is saying, I believe you've got this, God. I believe you really have this. There's several things that Darlene and I have been praying about. There's one thing Darlene said, and she says, every time I pray about that, God says, I've got this. I've got this. It's just such a powerful thing. Peace is saying, I know you've got this, so I can relax. I think it was T.D. Jakes that said one time, we've heard several national ministers say this over the years, because if there's one thing that all of us who are parents are so motivated about, it's about the blessings of our children. And if we love Jesus, we want them to love Jesus, be passionate about Jesus. I think it was T.D. Jakes, I think I heard Joyce Meyer say it and others. Basically, this is what they said. If I knew how God was going to work things out in the future, in their lives, I would have never worried a moment. So what happens? Worry is somewhat a lack of faith because they're saying, I don't know if you've got this, God, so I'm going to try to help you out. So what we do is we worry, but worry doesn't accomplish anything. I've heard people describe worrying as, as shoveling air. I've heard them describe worrying as rocking in a rocking chair. You get a lot of action going on, but you're not going anywhere. You know, just all that movement and everything. So worry, again, I know it's easier to say and preach about than to experience, but it's what we need to start practicing, not letting worry get a stronghold in our mind and in our hearts. So here it says that we're not to worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank him for all he has done. And then there's a connecting word in the New Living Translation, then. Then is a word that there's a transition going on. It says, now that you've done all this, then you get this. So what happens is, we oftentimes want verse 7, that I'm getting ready to read, why we just read verse 6 and don't ever do it. We're still worrying, we're not really praying. And by the way, some of the things we call prayer is more like I'm complaining to God. You know what I mean? I don't really call that prayer. So we haven't we haven't been controlling our worry life. We haven't been really praying about everything. We haven't been operating in a spirit of thanksgiving. But we do want to get to verse 7. But in order to get to verse 7, there's a then there in the New Living Translation. You've got to do verse 6, then you get verse 7. So here's verse 7. Then you will experience God's what? God's peace. Then you will experience God's peace, 
which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Very distinctly two different things. Kind of our spirit man and our mind. He'll guard your hearts and your minds as you live in Christ Jesus. So the natural side of peace is we start doing the the word of God and things start having peace around us. We create an atmosphere for that. And then the supernatural thing is that God gives us peace in the midst of the storm. Now, I do encourage us here. God's always wanting us to get through the storm, you know, not to set up camp in the storm, not to build our house in the storm, not to just decide this is where I'm going to live. The goal is to get through it. We have storms in our life. We all do. It'd be foolish and and, uh, irreverent and wrong preaching to say you'll never have a storm. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. I always appreciate it if he would have said, you might have, but he says, you will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Cheer up, for I have overcome the world. He's made us overcomers, but we, we go through tribulations, through storms, through all that. We want to get to the other side. So just even using my little example of, of, of if you got stressed in your life because of finances, that may be where you're at today, but let's work at getting through that. So the one day you say, oh, remember what it used to be like when we were like that and what it is like now? So we want to get through those things. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live. You're not visiting Jesus. You're not going on a date with him every now and then. You are married in love and living together. You are, are having a relationship, a life-changing relationship with Jesus. So... Peace, again, is mentioned hundreds of times in the Bible, and so I think it's pretty important in the Bible, and we understand it's important in our lives as well. Now, when I study things out, I like to look at multiple different translations. This is something anybody can do. You can go to BibleGateway.com, and it'll, it'll give you information like that, and plus any other Bible you know, software you use. Or, back in the old days, before we had computers, we had what we call parallel Bibles. Anybody remember parallel Bible? Raise your hand up high if you've ever heard of a parallel Bible. They were about nine feet wide, and you would open them up, and there would be like the King James and the, the New International Version and the New American Standard. There'd be like four translations in there, so you could kind of do some comparison. Now, people uh, sometimes ask me, why are there so many different Bibles saying so many different things? There aren't. There are many different translations, which means that a group of people, usually up hundreds of scholars, have gone to the original Hebrew and Greek. We don't speak, most of us here, I assume, don't speak Hebrew which is the Old Testament, or Greek and Aramaic, which is in the New Testament. And so these scholars have gone through and gone to the original Hebrew and Greek and translated into English, so we can have the most accurate translation of that for us English-speaking people. And so there's not just different Bibles, but there are different ways of saying things. And so I like to connect with that. If you're a King James fan here today, which I am too, I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's an intellectual and, and gorgeous work of art. But it is 1600 English. So sometimes people get lost in the 1600 English. I don't know if you know this, but words that we use in the 1600s that we still use today don't even mean the same things, many of them. You know, there's a Bible verse in the King James that says we should be holy in our conversation. Now, if I ask you what a conversation is, you'll say it's talking with somebody, having a dialogue with them. That's not what it means in the King James. The word conversation in the 1600s means lifestyle. We should be holy in our lifestyle. Now, if you get a modern translation, it'll say lifestyle. And you go, oh, okay. 
So when I talk to people and I say, you know what, the Bible says, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren, they go, time out, okay, I don't even know what a beseech is, so I don't know where to go. I say, okay. So I might go to different translations, I urge you, brothers and sisters. They go, okay, why didn't you just say that? I urge you, brothers and sisters. They both mean the same thing, they're just said differently. So are you with me? They're not different Bibles, they're the same Bible, maybe choosing words differently. So I was looking at this, and I decided to look up this paraphrase, which is different than the translation. And I, as bad as I want to explain it all to you, I know you want me to move on. There's three of you here who go, please, Pastor, tell us the difference between paraphrase and translation. The rest is, we don't even care. We've already forgot what a translation was. Just move on. Okay, so I'm moving on. In the message, it's a paraphrase. One man, Eugene Peterson, does this work. It's a beautiful, amazing work. And when he translates... This verse that we just read that has the word peace in it twice, he doesn't use peace even one time. <gasps> That's the problem. No, it's not a problem. Hang with me here. I want us to see how he words that. Philippians 4, 7. Of course, 6 is about pray, trust God, thank the Lord, don't let worry, you know, encamp in your life. And then verse 4, verse 7, it says, now the one we read previously said, then this will happen. So the message says, before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for, for what? For good. Everything coming together for good will come and settle you down. Now, this is not a translation. I just looked at that one time and said, you know, I like this too. We'll come and settle down on you. God's wholeness and peace. It doesn't use the word peace in either that all the other translations use twice. And then it goes on to say this. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I want you just to answer this in your own heart and mind right now. Are you a professional worrier? I'm, I'm not joking about this. There are people who worry that they have nothing to worry about. I've, I've actually had that try to attach itself to me before. I'll be thinking... Wow, everything's going well. Well, that's not, everything can't go well. Something has to go, whoa, time out. Yes, it can. Everything can go well. So, you know, I'm not going to try to create worry over having nothing to worry about. And so some people are professional worriers. And if you are, there's some good news from the scripture today. To displace, it says, it's wonderful when Jesus displaces, he displaces worry at the center of your heart. To displace means to dislodge something. Now, Kristen Hurley did a teaching for a couple Wednesday nights, Dr. Kristen Hurley, by the way, and taught some wonderful stuff. And when she was teaching on anxiety attacks, I, the, my, this verse brought me back to that because what happens is, is in those anxiety, anxiety attacks, if you ever have had one, you get locked in and you need something dislodged. You need to do something to dislodge that or another way of saying is you get caught in this cycle that something needs to break free. Well, God says Jesus will dislodge that worry that's getting stuck in your heart. Have you ever used hedge trimmers before? Using hedge trimmers and, and uh, you trim it off a, a thick branch and it gets stuck in the hedge trimmer? The thing won't work until you get it dislodged. You have to dislodge that for it to work properly. If you ever go dislodge it and use your hand, please make sure that everything is shut off and calmed down and you don't have it plugged in or no one's holding on to the on switch for it. And you, what you have to do is you have to take something 
and dislodge that branch. As soon as you dislodge that branch, unless you tore the thing up, it'll start moving, those teeth will start moving again, and it will work right. It will work the way it was made to work. And you and I need to work the way we were made to work. And we weren't made to be warriors. We were made Jesus. The Advent season is remind us that peace has come. So we need to embrace and understand and, and enjoy and experience this peace. Now, again, we go back to the message and we say, well, isn't that kind of an awful paraphrase? I mean, about every major translation says peace twice, and it doesn't say peace even one time. It's really not, because I do know this, and some of you know this as well, and you're all going to know it here in a second. Peace is a great big word in the Bible. It's a great big word. We think of peace just being an absence of noise or an absence of tension. But peace is much bigger than that. So peace is a big word of both the Greek and Hebrew. It's irene in Greek and shalom in Hebrew. Probably most of you have heard the word shalom. It means peace. But it means so much more. What, what it says, it means, the word peace, it means to join, to tie together into a whole. It means wholeness. Isn't that an interesting, wholeness? That is, when all essential parts are joined together, then, this is just out of a Bible dictionary, peace, and then in parentheses it has there, this is how the Bible dictionary defines peace. God's gift of wholeness. God's gift of wholeness. That's what peace is, God's gift of wholeness. So they are great big words here. Then it goes on to say, favorable. This is what's all encompassed in the, in the word shalom or irene in Greek. Favorable, healthy, peaceful, prosperous, safe, secure, well, well-being, and whole. That's not something I made up. You can, if you've got a Bible dictionary, you can look it up. And this is, this is what's all entangled up in the word peace. So this peace, this shalom, is in essence how things were meant to be. I want that to sink in again. How things were meant to be. This is how God meant life to be peaceful, that we would have peace. Now, I understand we're in a sin-sick, hurting, broken world, and that's not always the reality we have, but that was God's goal. Remember when the disciples said, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray. And he said, that's a good assignment. Here, here it is. Here's a model prayer for you. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think it could be translated this. Here's a good prayer. Pray that things will happen in the earthly realm like they were meant to happen, like they were meant to be. They were meant. God didn't design the world to be full of stress and war and violence and evil, and I get, I know that's where we're at right now, and there's a time where we would say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and when he comes, but when he comes, things will be made different. And in the meantime, we get to have a peace that surpasses understanding. It goes beyond our circumstances, and it goes beyond our intellect. Why do I have this? the way things were meant to be. So, back to Philippians 4, 7 in the message, before you know it, a sense of wholeness. Now, he didn't actually use the word peace, but I think we can agree after this little study that he did use the technical word for peace, wholeness. The wholeness of God. Before you know it, a sense of God's wholeness, everything coming together for good. Man, I don't want you to miss that. 
James says this, the brother of Jesus, every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And I think the King James says, in whom there's no variableness of turning. And you go, okay, well, jump out the King James for a moment. Okay, where he's so bright, he doesn't even cast a shadow. See, shadows cast because, you know, light's hitting me over here and it's putting a shadow over there, but if I just radiated light, there would be no shadow coming out of me. I might be creating shadows around, but there would be no shadow coming out of me. Every good and perfect gift is from above. And so we can have this wholeness. Every good and perfect gift is coming to settle down on you. It's wonderful what happens when Christ displaces worry at the center of your life. I want to encourage us today to, to allow the, that process to start in your heart. Uh, and if you're, you say, I'm not really much of a worrier, but all of us have times where worry wants to jump on us. And then we say, okay, let's practice this. I'm not going to allow or permit worry to get to the center of my mind and the center of my heart. I'm going to displace that through Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And I got some assignments in Philippians verse 6 that uh, even before that it talks about that we can rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. The whole chapter is a really good one. And I get assignments in Philippians 4, 6 of what to do in order to experience Philippians 4, 7. So, as we think about the Prince of Peace, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He comes to bring wholeness to our lives. The thing that will help that happen is what we've already talked about. Plant this scripture in your heart. Plant this scripture in your heart. Get it in you. We need recall. We need to put the whole, the Holy Spirit will help recall stuff. You get that word in you and the Holy Spirit will bring that word back to remembrance. Jesus promised that as one of the duties in, of the Holy Spirit to bring that word back to remembrance. And you get that word sown in you. Otherwise what happens is you do experience long periods of life where you've gone to church, you think you've been faithful, you've, you've done all the right stuff, but you don't seem to be growing. Well, get to the application stage. Start practicing these things. So the assignment for this week is read Philippians 4, 4 through 8. That's a lot less reading than your assignment was a few weeks ago. It was read the Gospel of John. Now I won't ask for a show of hands because you all just be bragging. We all did it. We all did it four or five times probably. So I'm not going to let you brag about how you read the Gospel of John. For those of you who are here every week and you're going, we were supposed to read the Gospel of John? Yeah, that was one of our assignments. I do want to say I finally accomplished it. I, I went to the Gospel of John, just going to read through it and see what all Jesus was doing, but then I got intrigued with Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that if this didn't happen to you, you're not spiritual. I'm just saying it happened to me. And so it took me about two weeks, and I don't know, probably 15 hours going through there. But one of the discoveries I made, and I want to pass this along, is that in, I was reading in the New American Standard for some reason. When I was reading in the New American Standard, there's 81 times, 81 times in the 21 chapters of the Gospel of John that we are told to believe. I never found any a single assignment about, you've got to do this, you've got to follow this rule, and you've got to make that happen. You have to, we have to believe. And when we believe, belief changes our life. And then belief changes the way we live. So what I want to challenge you today is you need to believe that God really will do Philippians chapter 4. You've got to believe he really will do Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. But I threw in 4 through 8 because it's all really, really, really good. So if you have access to technology, 
you can go to BibleGateway.com or a host of other sites, and you can look up this passage in multiple different translations, and you can do the message, and you can just really allow all the different ways. It's going to say the same thing, but the different ways it says it to really spark your heart to believe that God can displace worry in your life. And that on this second Sunday of Advent, we're really saying, hey God, you are the Prince of Peace. We love you. We praise you. We're trusting you to give us supernatural peace that surpasses our understanding and our knowledge. Put that into practice, and I believe the wholeness of God will come upon me and you as we practice these things, and that just gives us wonderful peace.